0: Hey folks, it's Brian. Uh, We are releasing something that was part of our premium episode last week, but we wanted this interview to be unlocked for the public feed in just a few days after the release of the initial. So that's what we're doing now. I want to give you a little bit of context going into this interview. So Josh and I are very interested in what is coming up for the CRC, or Christian Reformed Church of America. The CRC every few years has a synod meeting, which is the governing body of the denomination, and it decides certain theological matters, which then determine policies that are either delegated to individual churches or managed by the denomination on the whole. Now the CRC is a very small denomination. It's only about 200,000 or so Americans in it, but among those 200,000 or so, Are some incredibly powerful people, including the late Rich DeVos, founder of Amway, the world's largest pyramid scheme, who was also in the inner circle of the Republican Party until his long overdue death. Of course, these days, if you know the name DeVos, you know it because of Rich's daughter-in-law, Betsy DeVos, the sister of Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater. Yeah, we are talking about billionaires, people who have the ear of politicians and party apparatuses who are putting a lot of money into changing America into their own vision, and even, in the case of Eric Prince especially, the entire world. Now the Christian reform denomination is an interesting one among evangelical denominations. It's developed a bit of a reputation for having a more, let's say, lax or enlightened approach to social issues. Women can be elevated to decision-making power and even ordained as pastors on a church-by-church basis within the denomination, but in terms of issues regarding uh, sex, sexuality, gender, gender identity, the church is still incredibly retrograde in its approach. Coming up pretty soon this year, there is going to be a synod meeting regarding a report that the denomination has put together regarding human gender and sexuality. Now, their basic statement on sexuality and gender has not changed for the last 50 years, and I think at the beginning of this whole exploratory process, people were hoping that there might be some positive changes in the wake of uh, major social shifts of the early 20th century. However, it is very clear from the report that what is coming down the pipe for Synod this year is not going to be that. Anyway, Josh and I went to a Christian reformed college called Calvin College, named after, yes, John Calvin. It is now referred to as Calvin University in a desperate rebranding, it is not really a different institution, it simply is in a greater need of students and is hoping that calling itself a university will get it more students, especially from overseas. And that place had this sort of quiet reputation for being more chill, and more, if not institutionally accepting, it was an institution that was fine to just sort of lazily ignore if you were, say, gay, like uh, yours truly. And the student body itself was far more accepting. Now in the 10 years since we were there, their student body has dropped by about 25% of what it was. And their faculty has dropped, they have been losing money for a very, very long time, and Part of their branding has been bringing themselves closer to the stated ideology of the denomination which has led to a lot of very public controversy, especially in just the last couple of years. Calvin College is, of course, a Christian reformed school, so we wanted to talk to someone who has been reporting very well on some of the issues that have been arising in the last couple of years. So we talked to Harm van Huysen, who is the outgoing editor-in-chief of the Calvin Chimes, the school newspaper that has always been known, even now, for very good reporting. Even reporting that stirs the pot quite a bit at the institution, even in its more conservative years, back when Paul Schrader, yes, that Paul Schrader, was the editor-in-chief of the Chimes, and you can imagine what his kind of personality would have brought to it. That man has not changed. In the last few years, the school itself and even the student body has become a breeding ground for a lot more uh, radicalized right wing perspectives. There is now a Turning Point USA chapter on the campus there have been some high profile firings and that's what we're going to get into with this interview and yeah sure it just seems like this is just some small christian college up in michigan why does this matter and it matters because i think what we see here at this relatively quote liberal christian college you know this isn't bob jones or pensacola university this is a school that is turning further to the right much like these more enlightened, liberal, relaxed Christian evangelical denominations such as they even exist, this is important for politics going forward. And you can see how extremism is rising up even in more bland, milk-toast spaces than it was, uh, to a greater degree than it was 10 years ago. And you can see how that is reflecting in our politics today. You can see... Uh, how things keep turning to the right. And we can see the failures of academic institutions and their financial breakdowns and everything like that. And this school is perfectly illustrative of all of that, I think. Because of its place in the culture, it, it, it acts as a sort of microcosm of everything else that's going on in the country. So without any further ado, I think I'm going to hand this on over to Josh. See
1: you later. All right, well, uh, we are here for yet another extra special interview, Uh, and I have with me today here Harm Van Huysen, who is the outgoing editor-in-chief of Chimes, the Calvin Student Newspaper, Uh, and I believe you just graduated this past weekend, right? Yeah, just on Saturday we had the ceremony. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. So the reason that I reached out to you in the first place is that we track a lot of things on this show that are to do with prevailing trends in culture, particularly to do with the reactionary approach to a lot of different things that are going on. And in this episode that we did, we specifically talked about the news and news reporting in the way that the news can either reinforce power structures, or it can question them and speak truth to power. And uh, Harm, I know that you have been working pretty extensively during your time at Calvin on a series of different news articles to do with the health of the college. So before we get into that, why don't you just tell us a little bit about you, uh, what your story is, and uh, how you got into doing this stuff in the first place?
2: Yeah, so I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin. Uh, It's called Burnett, a couple hundred people there. Um, came to Calvin because of my affiliation with the CRC. Uh, So, I grew up in a Christian Reformed church, and yeah, Calvin, Dort University, Trinity were kind of the options when it came to college. Right. Uh, So, I came out to Calvin uh, not really knowing what I was interested in, came in as mechanical engineering, and wound up switching into political science and philosophy because I realized I I really enjoyed writing, uh, really enjoyed these sort of discussions about, you know, the ethical and and truth and what is the good. Uh, So, got into political science and philosophy and then became connected with the student newspaper towards the end of my freshman year. I okay. uh, just started getting a bit of an interest in it, so I put in an application to be a staff reporter. I came back the next school year and did an interview with the paper and got on. Uh, throughout my time at Chimes, I've worked as a staff reporter, then as religion editor, uh, managing editor, and now in the past year, I've been editor-in-chief. Um, so It's really let me explore uh, some of those concepts of, of the value of truth and and public good at Calvin so yeah I've loved it
1: tell us a bit more about the CRC what its whole deal is and also how the relationship between the CRC and Calvin College has affected Calvin's policies socially in terms of its student body.
2: Yeah, so Calvin's the denominational school of the Christian Reformed Church. It was founded in 1876 by the CRC and it was initially meant to be a a seminary to produce CRC pastors. Uh, The denomination still provides some financial support to the university today, though that number has been dwindling over the past few decades. Um, At the beginning of the fall 2021 semester. Uh, every semester or every every school year, they put out a report um, detailing the different demographics of the student body, and Kelvin's first year students were 28.4 percent affiliated with the CRC. So that number has also been shrinking for a long time, as I'm sure you know. And it's created this really interesting environment at Kelvin where you have a strong adherence to CRC policies and values because of its affiliation, but only about a quarter of students are from that background. So in terms of specific policies, uh, the one that I've really been involved with this past semester uh, are Kelvin's policies against LGBTQ plus relationships, sexual activity, those sort of things. The CRC as a denomination, assumes a position of uh, the the way I hear it commonly summarized is love the sinner hate the sin Right. So the sin being, in this case, sexual activity in a same sex relationship. That, according to Calvin's faculty handbook, staff handbook, is considered sexual misconduct in the same way that the church might consider premarital sex as sexual misconduct.
1: This is a policy that is based on some guidance that was provided by the actual denomination, right? Like there's a whole thing going on right now as well where the denomination has had these historical uh, approaches. They they had this document that they released. And do you remember what the year was that they put out that first document about like same sex behavior or whatever they call it?
2: Oh, that must have been. I think it was 1973 that they had yeah. the first major document.
1: Which is interesting, too, because that was really kind of like at the vanguard at that point to be even talking about like gay dudes having sex in 1973. That was not something that was really on the radar of most Christians at that point. And if it was, it probably would have been considered pretty severe deviant behavior. So at the time, the approach of, well, the same sex attraction in and of itself is not necessarily a sin but it is a sin to have sex with somebody who is the same gender as you is sinful in its way. That was almost progressive for the time, uh, as fucked up as that is, but it's, we've, been, we've come a ways since then and they're just continuing to reinforce that approach in the denomination,
2: right? Yeah. So when that policy first came out, um, I think, yeah, like you said, a lot of people saw it as a progressive move. Uh, there's lots of people who thought it would would continue down a path towards a more accepting stance. And right. today, um, it seems for a lot of students at Calvin, uh, a lot of people involved in these discussions, that it's not enough and that that position is outdated uh, and needs to go one way or another. Either it's all a sin or it's all not a sin because of the connection between orientation and action.
1: Right. And there's a vote. That's going to be coming up at synod, which is the denominational meeting of the CRC this summer about whether or not to accept a new document that would basically just once again uh, reaffirm this policy. Right.
2: Yeah. So that's a really interesting controversy right now. The uh, denomination put out a report from one of its study committees, I believe, in 2018. It was a couple of years ago. It's been put off by covid. But they said that the denomination's position on same-sex marriages, on human sexuality, is already confessional because of of groundings in the Heidelberg Catechism and, and other creeds that are held dear by the CRC. And so for it to be already confessional would imply that anybody who signed a, a form of subscription, so that's elders, deacons, um, the, the professors at Calvin University are required to sign a, a similar form of subscription, even though they're not technically considered office bearers of the CRC, it would retroactively imply that all these people are in agreement with the stance on human sexuality. Up to this point, they've seen the denominational st- stance as you can disagree with this as long as you abide by it in your teaching, in your practices, right 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 so yeah that would that would cause a lot of difficulty for some professors at calvin um, 150 or so signed a letter when the report came out saying that they were in disagreement with it and and didn't think that this should be a confessional stance so that's a, a pretty significant portion of calvin's faculty
1: Right. And just to clear this for people who don't follow the ins and outs of denominational politics very closely, which is probably many of our listeners. Like what is a confessional stance and what is the significance of
2: that? Yeah. So for it to be a, a confessional stance, it's it's kind of a, a make or break issue. Um, it's it's something that we confess as members of the denomination that we all hold to be true. And that just doesn't fly for some people right now. Um uh, a number of years ago, a few decades ago, the, there was controversy over whether or not there should be female uh, pastors and office bearers in the CRC. And rather than make it confessional, they went the other way and said, we'll let churches decide on a church by church basis or on a, on a classes basis. So uh, the decisions with, with female pastors and, and female office bearers have been disseminated to lower levels. And this is going the exact opposite direction and saying, let's make this decision for every congregation, every person in our church. If you're in our church. You're confessing that this is what is true. It's not up for debate.
1: Right. And I actually remember I was in attendance at Synod when they were having those conversations. Um, I actually at the time was just kind of curious about where these things would go. And there had been a series of uh, pressure protests toward the denomination with regard to this particular thing. And so I sat in on synod that year, at least for the part where they were debating it, when they, when they came to that decision, when they came to the decision to basically devolve it to the classist level rather than making it a confessional issue. So why is it then that they can't or, or won't, maybe more accurately, take that approach to this? Why is it that people within the denomination are pushing this so hard as a confessional issue?
2: There is a lot of pressure from either side to make a, a firm decision. Uh, these churches are all aware of each other's business in a way that, that historically hasn't been. And I think in part due to the the presence of, of media organizations covering these types of things. So uh, Chimes actually ran an article, uh, I believe two years ago, about Neyland Avenue CRC. And they had, a, it's a it's a CRC church in Grand Rapids that yep. had appointed a deacon uh, who was in a same sex marriage. And that was very controversial across the CRC. And you had churches from all across the country and even places in Canada Canada uh, writing in with their opinions on it. So everybody was
1: was this the first like LGBTQ person who was appointed to that sort of position in the denomination
2: to the best of my knowledge. Yes, I would have to do some fact checking on that, but I believe that's accurate. Uh, and so, yeah, everybody heard about it throughout the CRC and had their own opinion on it. And it's not enough, I think, today to just have the, the policies in your church govern your church. Right. It has to be denomination wide. Otherwise, you, you feel like you're out of agreement. You don't feel like you're in a denomination that represents you well. So everybody wants their way uh, to be the way for the entire denomination. And yeah, there's this this wide expectation that there will be a, a firm decision on it. And so there's a lot of pressure from either side. The CRC uh, in itself is is rather divided on these issues. You have congregations, you have classes or classes, classes, um, Classies?
1: classes, classes, <laughs> classes, you have
2: classes that, that take different stances on this. And um, all of them are writing in letters and stating their stance to the denomination right now, expecting that there will be a decision on this.
1: In the classis, by the way, again, for our listeners who are not familiar with the ins and outs of uh, denominational politics, a classis is basically the lower level uh, organization that a group of churches will be, belong to a class. It's in much the same way that a Catholic church has like dioceses. It's, it's a similar kind of situation.
2: Yeah. So in that way, you get a lot more of the, the geographic, demographical representation, and you right. can have very conservative classes and not so. So, yeah, it's interesting.
1: And one of the most liberal ones, it's worth noting, is Classis Grand Rapids East, which is, of course, based out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is the home of Calvin College. So, you know, you've been on the ground reporting about this stuff. What sorts of things have you heard from people about this? Either, you know, probably a lot of it from students, but also some from other people. Why is this such a high stakes thing for people? I mean, on either side, what are what are the perspectives in that regard?
2: Yeah. So you have a a significant portion of, of people in the CRC who feel like if the denomination decided that this stance against same-sex action or homosexual action is, is confessional, that they just can't have that in their church. They can't go to a church that believes that, that says you can't marry your spouse in a, in a gay marriage. Um, that's just not something they can abide by. And so you have talk of, of splitting off, but on the other side, you have the exact same thing. You have uh, conservative churches and, and congregations who saying, we can't be members of a church that says that this is okay. And it really comes down to the interpretation of scripture, which as we all know, can go a whole host of different directions.
1: But it's also worth noting that this is not just, I mean, yes, it is based on interpretation of scripture, but this is also a reflection of a broader culture war. The fact that, you know, Elsa Prince, who is one of the biggest financial backers of Calvin College, and of course, we all know her daughter, Betsy DeVos, she put a great deal of money into the Proposition 8 effort in California. She was one of the main financial backers of that movement. So let's pull it back to Calvin then. Um, How has the school's enforcement of this policy that we've now talked about. How concretely has that affected the students and staff at Calvin and why does that matter?
2: Very concretely, I'd say. So this is something I've, I've come to know a lot about over the past semester as I've been researching it and investigating um, policy decisions made. But over the past two decades, uh, there have been multiple instances in which Calvin University has fired an employee for being in a same-sex relationship, and they typically use nondisclosure agreements, confidentiality agreements to cover this up so that it doesn't cause a a broader controversy, which would affect donors and and student enrollment, things like that. Uh, But this past February, uh, Calvin announced that they were splitting off one of their main research institutes, the Center for Social Research. The announcement was abrupt and cited a whole lot of reasons that were mainly related to the institution's finance and entrepreneurship. It would allow the Center for Social Research to have greater access to capital, entrepreneurial freedom. They could take out loans, things like
1: that. Yeah. And I remember seeing this announcement when it, when it dropped and I was like, something doesn't sound right here. Like it just it just doesn't smell right.
2: Yeah. Something didn't add up. The There was no uh, forewarning of this announcement. Nobody saw it coming. It was abrupt. So on February 8th, they announced that on uh, February 15, I attended a uh, meeting of Faculty Senate, which is Calvin's faculty governing body. Um, and lots of professors there were uh, troubled by the CSR's abrupt departure and began asking questions. And the only thing that was mentioned, um, well, they mentioned all the the. Reasons that were stated in the press release, but then they mentioned a precipitating event that led to the the abruptness of this split. That was all I heard there. So my team and I began to dig um, and started to hear rumors that human sexuality LGBTQ plus issues were at the heart of this decision. So. Yeah, Calvin administrators never comment publicly on personnel matters or discuss them. And because Calvin's a private university, reporters can't file Freedom of Information Act requests uh, or anything like that to start to look at public records and documents that might otherwise be available at public universities. So it was a lot of um, on background source work, finding people who were close to the situation um, inside the university, outside the university, that just might be able to provide a little bit of an insight into why this decision was so abrupt. March 14, I ended up writing the first article that uh, explained that these policies against LGBTQ plus relationships were the reason for the abrupt split. And there were a lot of anonymous sources verifying the key facts of the split, but we really didn't have a lot of details or or quotes to flesh out exactly what happened and who was involved. So we laid out the facts as best we could confirm it. And then a week later, uh, I sat down for an interview with Nicole Swida, who was the employee at the Center for Social Research, whose same-sex marriage was was at the heart of this split. Um, she had actually just quit her job at the CSR to talk to the media. Uh, it turned out her bosses, um, the high level administrators within the CSR, had to sign non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality agreements about the split to ensure that it would right. go over well. Uh, so she quit her job to speak to the media, spoke with Chimes first, ended up speaking with a few other religious publications and, and told the full story of her marriage and, and how it played a role in the decision to split off the center for social research and it seemed all along like something the institution really wanted to keep quiet and then we found out another interesting part of this situation professor joe Kylama, a social work professor at calvin had actually officiated the sweda's wedding in october i believe of 2021
1: Right. And um, I, I know also that Joe Kylama, a professor of social work at Calvin, uh previously there was another controversy about him, which Chimes also reported on, uh, where he was denied tenure for unspecified reasons, right?
2: Yeah. So in 2018, Kailama didn't receive tenure uh, and there was speculation that his advocacy on LGBTQ plus issues might have played a role in that. Uh, that's something we were later able to confirm because of documents that came out in regards to this wedding he officiated. So in 2018, I should add, he was denied tenure and put into a cycle of, of two-year term appointments. And so every two years, the provost, the professional status committee at Calvin have to reappoint him into his position as a professor. And uh, this year, his reappointment decision was delayed. It was normally due in January and hadn't come out yet. So um, it was expected that it would come out after a board of trustees meeting in April. And we yeah, found out that he had officiated this wedding, that his his employment might be in jeopardy because of it. Uh, Weren't able to talk to him. He declined to comment because of his ongoing uh, employment decision. Then we saw a lot of staff and students start to speak out in support of him after we announced that his reappointment decision had been delayed. And when was that wedding? That wedding was in October 2021. Okay. And according to documents we um, obtained in late April, Kylama's reappointment decision actually was—it uh, was recommended that he would be reappointed by his dean by the Professional Status Committee, and that—that that was early December. And about a week after that recommendation was made, uh, new evidence arose. Somebody gave the provost a photo of Kailama officiating this wedding. And they went back on their recommendation and did a complete reconsideration of his file because of the role that LGBTQ plus advocacy had played in his um, 2018 tenure decision. So
1: wait, hold on. (laughs) Some snitch showed up with a photo of this wedding. and was like, Hey, by the way, you might want to know about this. What kind of behavior is that? That's wild. That's wild behavior. Good Lord. Yeah. And that behavior
2: really, um, shows the the split there is among calvin's faculty calvin's constituents Calvin's students on these issues you have a large contingent of calvin's student body of calvin's faculty body who say hey we need to be more affirming as a church we need to welcome lgbtq plus students and not just for their orientation but in their relationships and with all all that that orientation might entail and then you have this other group that is is against it and, and will go to great lengths to keep the university in its traditional stance on these issues. Uh, and Calvin is a, a really uh, interesting case study, I guess, for the wider denomination because you yeah. have so many different classes and, and congregations represented in both the faculty and student bodies.
1: Well, I would say for the denomination, but also for evangelical Christianity more broadly, right? I mean, certainly people who are from outside of this world, I think tend to see evangelical Christianity as a place where everybody loves Trump. Social perspectives are all pretty much like in line with a reactionary mentality. But there's a wide diversity of thought and diversity of opinion. The thing is, though, right now we're at this inflection point where these two ways of seeing the world are just coming at heads with each other and unlike perhaps in the past, there's no way to find any compromise about it. It is becoming a confessional issue. It is becoming an existential
2: matter, right? Definitely. And you see these two kind of mindsets where uh, one of the phrases you'll hear a lot around Calvin is reformed and always reforming. Uh, As a reformed denomination, it's our our duty to continue to consider new issues in light of, of new revelations, whether that be through scripture or through cultural, social things that are changing. Uh, so that's one side of it. And the other side is, yes, we're a reformed institution, but there are certain things we interpret through scripture that are are fixed, that cannot be up for debate, that are confessional. And so those are really the two mindsets, the reformed and always reforming, and the, the traditional mindset. And you see that across evangelical Christianity, there's this divide of, of what do we do with, with hot button social issues? Do we engage with them or do we set ourselves apart from the broader culture as a, a tradition?
1: Based on what you've heard from people, I'm really curious to hear this. For, for people who come down on the side of this is a confessional matter, we need to, you know, reinforce as part of one of the bedrock components of our denomination that same-sex attraction is okay, but, you know, same-sex sex is not, you know, we can't have gay marriage, that kind of thing. Why is this such a fundamental thing? Why, why this specific issue? Why do people get so passionate about
2: it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question and one I've been asking a lot. I'm not sure I have a super clear answer on it. Uh, but it seems that the people who say this is the issue, the hill to die on, uh, see this as the church being pressured by, by society, by culture, which is moving in a direction that they believe is not in line with scripture. And so, uh, if the church were to, to become more affirming on these issues, it would it would water down what they believe scripture says. And right. so I, I don't think it's necessarily uh this is the only issue um and the only issue we're gonna make confessional or the only issue that matters, but this is the political issue right now that, right. that's popular and debated. And so if we don't take a stance on this, if we don't make this confessional, we're giving in to society.
1: You know, we we could we could sit here and talk all day about the ideal of what reformed Christianity even means, but I feel that. that That certainly with what I grew up with, the idea of reformed Christianity is very much to your point of like reformed and always reforming rather than setting the world aside and refusing to engage with it and creating our own version of the world. The idea instead is that we ought to be addressing it, reshaping it and figuring out what the most just way is to provide for the most people and also just try to create the kingdom of heaven here on earth or whatever. And I guess it's just different ways of doing that project. And again, it falls down largely along partisan lines.
2: Yeah, that's been a, a really interesting thing to observe. Um, exactly like you said, they they both see a grounds for their interpretation of, of scripture and, and engaging with these issues or not engaging with these issues of drawing back. And it, it does tend to fall along these party lines because of how politicized all these issues are.
1: What did that process look like? You've already talked a little bit about how you, you know, did a lot of interview on background. You were able to secure some documents. In practice, like, did you run up against institutional resistance? Were you finding people who are like, hey, you probably shouldn't talk about this? Like, what did that look like? Calvin's
2: administration never comments publicly uh, or, or gives any information really about personnel issues. So there was certainly the, the standard resistance there of we can't talk about this, we can't comment on this. And that protects everybody involved. You know, there's there have been instances at Calvin where a professor committed misconduct, but because the administration won't speak about that. That professor is uh, protected. Uh, it also protects the university, though, from situations like this in which controversial decisions were made that they want to keep quiet. So there's certainly always that resistance when dealing with this. But uh, yeah, there were also people who said, why are you pursuing this kind of story, um, especially after the first couple articles went out? Why is it worth dredging up all this muck? Uh, you're only going to hurt the institution. There's There's been an interesting uh, contention around, do you mm. support institutions or do you support the truth? truth. Uh, Do you protect this church, this denomination, this college that you're you've been with for a long time that you love dearly uh against bad publicity against declining enrollment and, and what this bad publicity might do for that or do you pursue truth do you pursue uh you know a chance to to address these issues publicly
1: and where do you fall on that as a journalist
2: i i think truth is is one of the highest goods that anyone can pursue i think that as an institution transparency accountability should be in the center of discussion very very highly valued and so that's one thing i've really pursued in my time at china is how do I get conversations about truth and accountability more into the the forefront of faculty's minds, of of students' minds, of administrators' minds? Uh, How do I get people thinking about how they can be more truthful and transparent as an organization or as a person? So yeah, I'd certainly fall on the truth side of that debate, but I can see the the emotion behind uh, the people who say, look, we love Calvin. I've worked here for two decades. I've worked here for three decades. I've supported this institution with hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't want to see it fail because I believe in its mission, despite the the controversy around the LGBTQ plus issues or the LGBTQ plus students who are hurt by these decisions. And that hurt is never acknowledged publicly.
1: That's something that I'd love to hear a bit more about, too, is, as you said, the hurt caused by these decisions, because obviously, yeah, institutionally, you can protect something's reputation. But without the work that you and Chimes have been doing on this, the voices of the people who have truly been impacted by this and, and have had harm done to them, both emotionally and like to in terms of their own bottom line, like people have lost jobs. What sorts of things have you heard from the people who have been most directly impacted by this? And what do those stories mean to you?
2: Yeah, there is a substantial portion of Kelvin's student body uh, that is LGBTQ plus, And we have a uh, it's Students, oh, it's it's Saga. I can't saga, baby. remember the the exact uh, what it stands for, but Saga is Calvin's, um, yeah, student org for LGBTQ plus issues. It's affirming. Uh, it provides a, a safe space for these LGBTQ plus students to uh, speak with each other, and yeah, just it's it's a support group in many ways. Um, and so they'll do campus events, and they're pictured on Calvin's website prominently, uh, but students get to campus, and from what I've heard from a lot of LGBTQ plus students at Calvin um, in reporting on this, is they get to campus after having seen these pictures of Saga online uh, and, and hearing you are loved, which is Saga's slogan, uh, and thinking that Calvin is a, a very affirming place for them to get a Christian education. And on the ground, the reality is different. They find that um, from what I've been told, Saga can be a bubble for some students in which uh, you feel like, yeah, maybe I'm supported and affirmed in this one place, but the broader campus is not that way. And so it it can be really harmful to LGBTQ plus students to see in all the promotional materials that Calvin is affirming and then get here and find out that the reality is different um, or can be different for some students. So those students can often be hurt uh, by that. And those students, uh, LGBTQ plus students, affirming students, students for whom this is a a major part of their lives, a major issue to them, uh, were really hurt to find out that Calvin was acting on these employment policies. That Calvin had these employment policies because they're not publicized. Yes, they're available oh, sure, in right. a hundred-page faculty handbook, but they're not publicized. And so you have these students coming in with no idea of this. But you can sometimes have staff and faculty who also enter the university not knowing about these policies. And yeah, they sign on. It's it's kind of like a checking the box on terms and right, conditions. You right, right, right. Just right. sign the document without reading all hundred pages of it. And so. Nicole Swida, the employee whose same sex marriage was at the center of the CSR's departure from Calvin, uh, had been a student at Calvin for four years uh, and said that, yeah, she might have gone somewhere else had she known what the reality was going to be. But in her time at Calvin, she found a community and she began working at the Center for Social Research. And it was a place that she felt affirmed, that she felt safe. Uh, so she began working there after graduation. And that change from student to employee uh, Really was shocking for her because uh, the policies began to apply. She right. couldn't be in a same-sex relationship. She couldn't be married to her spouse uh, in her position at Kelvin.
1: I mean, technically, the rules do also apply to students like Calvin, you're not you're still not allowed to have sex, right? Technically.
2: Yeah, you're technically not allowed to have premarital sex um, as a Calvin student. You're not allowed to, to be in a same-sex marriage as a Calvin right. student. Um, there are, one would assume, many sexual relations on a college campus. that. Not me. I never
1: of, had sex at Calvin. <laughs> not once.
2: But yeah, you might assume that that, that goes on uh, at a university, any university. Uh, but it's, it's not something you see as uh, the, the policy enforced as strictly on um, as you might for employees.
1: Right. Because ultimately enforcement has different implications for students than it does for staff. Right. I mean, if you are a student and you're having some sex, well, first of all, you're a college kid. So like whatever, just don't get caught. Whereas if you are staff. Your role in that organization is, you know, you you are very much signed on to promote the values of that institution because of the way that the law works in this country. You are very much; it is very much legal to terminate your employment because you don't agree with some component of their moral code.
2: Yeah, certainly. And and with students, you you see that they're also a, a source of revenue, and so right. you want to uh, hold on to those students, as especially now. Yeah,
1: I mean, we we we've talked we talked before the interview about how. Calvin's uh, enrollment has dropped from like around 4,100 students when it was sort of like at its high watermark down to about like 3,000 now across the entire undergrad?
2: Yeah, just under 3,000 students in undergrad right now. And the the future is bleak for the next few years. Um, right. There are, yeah, serious enrollment issues coming down the pipeline uh, with fewer babies being born 18 years ago uh, and and all these demographic uh, changes in the Midwest especially that are going to be affecting Calvin pretty strongly.
1: What is the future for an institution like Calvin University. An institution like Calvin University and an institution
2: like the the CRC itself, that's the, the question right now. Uh, in the CRC with this human sexuality report coming to Senate this summer, what is the future for us? Should the denomination decide to try to take a middle ground, try to not make a decision? Uh, they are going to probably alienate a large percentage of their uh, constituency. But if they make a decision that goes one way or another, they're going to alienate even more people. Uh, and it's the same for Calvin. Now, Calvin, administration does pretty strictly adhere to the CRC stances and values and it's come up a number of times in faculty senate meetings the Mm. question of what happens if we if we don't go with the denomination and administration has been pretty clear that no we do go with the denomination and if they make a decision this summer we talk about what it means and how we can protest that within the the policies and procedures that are set up in the CRC so the the future is a scary thing for the crc right now um because they're trying to hold on to their constituency uh but they're have to. they expected to make decisions on these kinds of things that are divisive issues. So I can't tell you what the future will look like. Speculation is something I, I try to avoid typically as a journalist. I like to stick with the facts, but um, the facts are that this is a, a divisive issue and no matter what the CRC decides, it's going to lose people. It's going right. to upset people. And the decision they're facing is, do we upset people by giving a non-answer, a non-response, or do we upset people by going one way or the other? Any way you slice it, people are going to be upset. People are going to feel as though the church they're a part of doesn't represent them well and is not a a safe place for their beliefs or for them.
1: Yeah. And and I think too, what's going on here is you have different cultural cross pressures that are sort of coming to a head as well, because it's worth noting, we didn't talk about it up top, but that the Christian reformed church is a denomination that was founded by Dutch immigrants who came over during like the early to mid 1800s because the reformed church of the Netherlands was becoming too liberal for them. So the, I guess reactionary mindset is to an extent baked into the denomination, but that doesn't mean that everybody comports with it. So you have this, Conflict between people who want to see a future that looks more like the past that they remember versus people who believe that their faith implores them to be more accepting, more open. It's, it's such an impasse. I think that this conflict here is in many ways representative of what is going on in the broader landscape around evangelical Christianity, which I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, right? Where different groups of and this. This is something that has been brought to the fore by the Trump era as well. Right. That like what it means to be a Christian in political society in a way that is true to your own beliefs is something that increasingly is being proscribed based on whether or not you go along with the broader reactionary project. I'm curious to hear, like what you see as being the trends in sort of the journalistic landscape right now, particularly with regard to uh, evangelical Christianity, reactionary politics or however else you want to look at it.
2: Yeah. So, um, evangelical Christianity is a a huge topic right now, especially in religion, journalism, uh, Tons of great articles are coming out, and there's a lot of questions about what the future of evangelical Christianity looks like, and and how it plays out in politics. Um, is Trump the face of evangelical Christianity, or or is it something else with a with a small and outspoken contingent supporting Trump? You see a lot of a lot of divides within evangelical Christianity, and a lot of power as well. But what you haven't always seen historically is is transparency and accountability, uh, which I've talked about earlier and think is one of the most important things for institutions to have for sure i think it's also a thing that many institutions are are designed against you want to to keep the waters calm and so transparency accountability those are are things you're trying to avoid Uh, and
1: i would note too in, in evangelical christianity specifically there's a there's a long history of very powerful evangelical organizations unraveling completely once somebody started picking at the actual story. You can see that with like um, with Jimmy Swaggart. Uh, journalism in evangelical Christianity can often be viewed as a
2: sort of enemy trying to to erode these institutions. Uh, personally, I I think that institutions can be strengthened by accountability by coming forward saying these are our wrongs. We're seeking to address them, uh, but not everybody sees it that way, and for good reason, as you've mentioned institutions can be unraveled. But I think institutions uh, face an even bleaker future when they have covered up issues repeatedly, and then they come to light through journalism. So I think journalism plays a a strong role in evangelical Christianity and holding institutions accountable. um, So that, and also encouraging other institutions to do it for themselves. When you see other institutions being unraveled by exposés, by investigative journalists, maybe it should be a sign that that transparency uh, is something that should have come sooner the process. And you see uh, the good of investigative journalism in holding institutions accountable in instances like Mars Hill or Ravi Zacharias. uh, Yeah, or Hillsong. Hillsong, yeah. All these instances in which Christian institutions tried to cover things up uh, and and journalists came in and, and showed the truth. And so if we're talking about a reform perspective, I mean, it doesn't get much more reformed than exposing wrongdoing and, and seeking to address it and fix it. Maybe it's not the institutions that are are the things that uh, need to be reformed, but maybe institutions are torn down and, and replaced by new, better iterations of themselves.
1: Harm, thank you so much for coming on and sitting here uh, to talk with us a little bit. Is there anything uh, that you wanted to plug or point up or anything like that before we're done here? i
2: just say go take a look at the, the reporting Chimes has done on these issues uh, over the past months. It's, it's really really incredible work. I'm, I'm really proud of the staff that I've, I've been able to work with and lead this past year. Uh, they've done a great job covering all these issues. So great. And continue to look to Chimes next year as the human sexuality report comes out in the denomination.
1: And uh, that URL, uh, and we'll also put it in the show notes, is CalvinChimes.org. So go over, check it out, Definitely read uh, Harm's uh, articles and in, and in, in the articles written by all of the fantastic folks at The Chimes. Still, in my opinion, one of the best college newspapers to ever do it. And yeah, uh, I'm the worst of all possible. Joshes, see you all next time. Bye. So
0: all right, there we go. If you
1: want to hear a little bit
0: more of us, if you want to hear more of us, we have a pretty great backlog that you can check out at any time. If you go to Patreon.com slash worst of all that's patreon.com slash worst of all we're also on social media check us out on twitter at t-w-o-a-p-w or on instagram at the worst of all possible worlds just one word and that will direct you to our individual social media accounts if you want to follow us on those places as well Uh, and if you really like us tell your friends and maybe they can give us money instead bye